I don't know many people who have giver's remorse. I know a lot of people who have buyer's remorse. I don't, I, I'd love to meet someone that has made a sacrificial gift to whatever it is, whether it's a world vision or it's an alma mater or it's a museum or whatever, and said, boy, I really regret giving that away. Most people, when they give, they feel good about it. And there's something that's happening, whether it's physiologically or the chemicals, you feel like you are contributing to a better society. And that's 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 the fun part, at least about my role, is I get to work with people that are are wondering, well, what what is the solution? What's the answer to that? And if the answer is international relief and development, then we've got a great opportunity to do that. And it's exciting. And mm. and the other piece to it is, especially in this day and age, poverty is in retreat. You know, extreme poverty. So 20 years ago, the number of people living in extreme poverty was 31 million people. That's now down to 17 million people. There's lots of different reasons why that's happening, but poverty is truly extreme poverty. People living on $2 a day, that is in decline. We actually have the capability, not just World Vision, this is all of the efforts, governmental, non-governmental across the planet. In our lifetime, we could see essentially no one living in extreme poverty. Hi, and welcome to the Compassionate Achiever podcast. I'm Tracy Day. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Chris Cook, political and social science professor at Western Connecticut State University. He's founder of the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation, director of the Kathwari Honors Program. He's a Harvard Fellow, Fulbright Scholar, and ex-counterintelligence officer. He is also his latest and greatest achievement is he's the, yes, of course. <laughs> he's the author of the book, The Compassionate Achiever, How Helping Others Fuel Success. Hello there. Hello, Tracy. How are you? I'm doing well. It's, it's a nice uh, summer day. So it was it is uh, beautiful. It was great out there. And how are you doing? Awesome. Just awesome. And I am so excited. I actually are, I had the privilege of having lunch with our guest today earlier who was um, speaking at um, my husband's company. David Mitchell is joining us. Um, David, you're, you're just an amazing guy all the way around. Clearly a compassionate achiever. He has vision. He, he, he definitely <laughs> has, has like world vision. Uh, oh, oh, that was you, just so they'll, bad. They'll, 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 get they'll get it. I know. <laughs> I, that was a setup. Hi, David. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Just a, a quick background on uh, David. He, do you prefer David or Dave? I, I, I call you both, but... You do, and other people do as well. Oh. But we'll we'll, okay. we'll stick with David. That's David, fine. Okay. Yeah. okay, got it. David Mitchell serves as d- the national director of philanthropy at World Vision U.S. It's one of the largest international humanitarian relief and development organizations serving those living in extreme poverty. A Seattle native, David joined World Vision in 2001, right, following several years at Microsoft and Arthur Anderson in the Pacific Northwest. Moving to Connecticut in 2006, uh, you were coming here to build World Vision's fundraising presence in the New York area, and you lead a team of 10 major gift-giving officers, right? You've traveled to 35 countries to witness World Vision's work helping communities tackle the root causes of extreme poverty. 
unbelievable the work you do, David. So kudos. Yeah, yeah, well, humbling. And uh, I, I, um, I just get to be a part of seeing the work. Um, I'm, I'm doing less of the physical work myself, just helping to introduce people to the amazing stuff that we're doing. Well, you do a great job at it. What I want to do before, well, let's start off with what world vision is for those that don't know. Um, and it's unbelievable around the world. I think you have a much bigger presence, but I think people in the U S who I'm assuming generally our listeners are from around here, um, don't know it that well. So tell us what world vision does. Yeah, Tracy, we are one of the best kept secrets. You uh, are. I, I, feel, I know, seriously. Uh, in the country. We are one of the largest private uh, humanitarian relief and development organizations, um, not only in the United States, but in the world in terms of the people that we impact. Uh, we are over 40,000 staff worldwide. Wow. We've been in existence for over 70 years and we work in nearly it? 100 countries. And so... Uh, yeah, we are we are a, um, a large organization, and what's really neat about it, uh, Tracy, is that we um, are primarily comprised of staff who live on the ground where we are working. So when you think of those 100 countries around the world, the majority of those countries are in the developing world. The majority of those areas in the developing world are in rural areas uh, where there is truly extreme poverty taking place, and that's mm-hmm. that is actually the bulk of our staff. That are there. It's not. It's not Americans and Canadians and you know the English telling you know people how to fix the world. We literally are telling the stories mm-hmm. of what our staff around the world are actually doing. And so, uh, as I said, we've been around for nearly seventy years. And the sh- the short answer of what we do is we tackle the root causes of poverty. And we we work with communities in the rural areas. We help to identify what are the things that are keeping them in extreme poverty. It could be lack of access to clean water. It could be a lack of access to basic health care, lack of access to economic development and the ability to actually earn income. Um, We also deal with issues of child protection, uh, trafficking, emergency relief or humanitarian emergencies. Um, So we have what we call more of a holistic model of how we come alongside communities and help them identify the various things that can help lift them out of that cycle of poverty. to what we call uh, give them fullness of life and true transformation in the work uh, that we do. Mm. So that's, that's really who we are uh, in a nutshell. Um, and we're, you know, all around the world, we're kind of motivated by our faith to do this. And, um, and it's really been wonderful to see uh, this, the different types of donors, both private and public, that have come alongside World Vision and wanted to join us in this work. Mm. It's amazing work. And obviously, when you talk about philanthropy, I think it's very easy for people to say, well, of course, people that do philanthropy work are compassionate. I mean, that, that, that's not a, a big leap, obviously. But you came from the cor- a corporate background. So tell us about that and how you made that switch over to the philanthropy world. Yeah. You know, um, if I were ever to write a book, which I probably will not, um, <laughs> but in my head I have several novels, uh, the one I would write is, would be entitled, So I Was Minding My Own Business, dot, dot, dot. And that would be the story <laughs> of my career development. Because like you said, uh, there are many people that uh, learn or feel from an early age that they want to be either generous or philanthropic. Um, I'll just be honest, that wasn't 
in the forefront of my mind. I wanted to go into business. I wanted to make some money. I wanted to have some you know, fun learning about uh, uh, the growth of industry and how it works. And uh, World Vision or, or helping to raise funds to help people in extreme poverty was the furthest thing from my mind. Um, when I came out of university uh, in the Seattle area, you're going to one of two different areas. You're either working in software or you're building airplanes. And so my father and, and his father built airplanes. I decided to shift and go into the software industry and worked at Microsoft. And, and this was during a time in the early 90s when Microsoft was just exploding. I mean, we literally had new products being cranked out about every three weeks. So mm -hmm. this is right when we were preparing for Windows 95 to come out. For those of you that remember Windows uh, oh, yeah. 95, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. So um, there was an incredible uh, sense of acceleration when you're working at Microsoft. And so I was, I was there, um, again, right out of school, uh, helping people with technology. And um, what my main role was, if you had a question about Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel in 1992 and you called World Vision, you probably got myself or a member of my team. I love um, it. We Where was he yesterday support. when I was calling you, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I was just a day late and a dollar short. We got it worked out. We did. We you got it did. Out. Yeah, you were on it. Thank you. For that. Yeah. Well, I, I digress. I have I'm to sorry. tell you, in full transparency, at the beginning of my role, when someone would call me, I had a a book that was probably larger than two encyclopedias. That was just the architecture of Microsoft Excel. So if you had an, a question. I was probably saying, please hold and listen to this music while I was flying through page 103 to 104 to figure out what the actual solution was. And how ironic is that you were looking at a book? I was. I mean, think about that. I love like, that. I, I actually right? love that. Yeah. I was looking at a book. Oh, yeah, but you're the author of a book. Oh, come on. Yeah. yeah. We, People like the physical. They do. There, there's something about a book as well. Yeah. Something tangible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something tangible. It's true. So, but I have to tell you, it was, um, it was a very, it was an enjoyable part of my career because I learned just you know how to how to educate and teach someone that you couldn't see right because you're on the other end of the line so you may be calling from you know Dallas Texas and I'm in Seattle and you have a problem with how your computer looks and works and I have to walk you through it but I don't get to sit down next to you um, I have to I have to imagine what your screen is looking like and kind of mm. work through that so that was a fun time for me it really helped me understand how adults learn Help me understand how people view technology and how technology could be um, leveraged. So frustrating. Ex no. <laughs> and frustrating. Yes. Was that my outside voice? I'm no, sorry. no, that was that. Well, that was a lot of inside voices. Uh, people calling into Microsoft. So, uh, anyway, so I I did that for uh, four years and um, uh, had a great opportunity to jump over to the business consulting side and worked for Arthur Anderson, which yeah. is now defunct. Uh, uh, but uh, there, we had a wing of Arthur Anderson Business Consulting where we came alongside businesses in the Seattle area, as Arthur Anderson did all over the world, and just helped people improve their business. And so I took some of my technology understanding know-how, and I helped uh, businesses uh, learn how to use software in a smarter way. And most of it was more end-user. I mean, how to, how to help executives use PowerPoint or relational databases uh, and so forth. So... Uh, did that for a number of years, and here's sort of where I was minding my own business. And uh, World Vision becomes one of our clients. And this is this organization that's in Seattle, Washington, uh, who I never heard from before. Uh, they had just gotten a new CEO that came from the corporate world, and he wanted to make World Vision as an organization much more efficient as a nonprofit. 
Uh, over the many years, our nonprofits are often run by visionaries, uh, folks that are, especially in the faith community, more kind of from the pastoral or the ministerial standpoint. But here you had a corporate guy from the Northeast that came in and said, we, we need to make this organization more efficient and we need to get more of our resources to the people we're trying to help in the field. So we want, he wanted to increase the funds to the field. So he calls Arthur Anderson and says, hey, we need to get a bunch of you guys down here to help us become smarter and more efficient. And so I was called to be on that team. So I spent a year and a half at, uh, at World Vision, literally, you know, kicking the tires, lifting the hood, looking in every nook and cranny of the organization to try to identify ways that they could run better as a business. And, you know, when you spend a year and a half um, really doing your own auditing and improving, um, there's an opportunity for you to fall in love with the organization. And that's exactly what happened. I had an opportunity to meet some of the people that were there to understand the motivations of why they were there wanting to help the poorest of the poor and just some of the um, just the skill set of the people and the mission and the vision and the values that, that I just so resonated with. Uh, I found myself in the end of that assignment thinking this is a type of organization I could work for for the rest of my life. Hmm. So there was an opportunity at the end for uh, me to uh, to go and join full time. And uh, it just made perfect sense to me. But a year and a half before, if you had told me that I was going to leave uh, the business consulting field to work uh, at a nonprofit to help, you know, battle extreme poverty, I would have said, you are crazy. I don't even know an organization that does that. Uh, so that's how life sometimes uh, has its plays twists on. and turns, yeah. doesn't it? That so, Chris, do you think the world as a whole is becoming more philanthropic or less? Uh, I mean, you came, you said you were just minding your own business, David, and you just you find yourself kind of being, you know, guided to that path or whatever down the philanthropy path. Do you think that's I think it depends on, you know, what section of the world and where you're talking about in the United States. But yeah, I think, you know, you see surveys of millennials, for example, Mm -hmm. and millennials are volunteering more than previous generations beforehand. So there's this intrinsic motivation that I I don't know if if that's driving them or the sense of purpose of, you know, going out because, you know, as honors director, I see a little bit of a mixture of both. And one of the things I try to do is I try to figure out which students are doing things to put on a merit badge checklist, mm. right, to make mm. themselves look good, compared to ones who actually believe in helping others. Want to mm. do it right? for because, the right reasons. Because studies have shown that people will succeed better at a higher level and a more sustainable level if they actually do it on an intrinsic basis, right, that, because they want to do it um, for the sense of that one entity, either they have compassion or patriotism or whatever it is they'll succeed where those who are looking for an extrinsic benefit right looking for money they're looking for um, some type of recognition they're actually going to flame out much faster and Mm -hmm. across all disciplines in in business in military everywhere studies are, are very clear on it and so you know what we're seeing is this kind of weird mixture there's an increase in volunteerism and you have to kind of tease out, you know, mm. why is this volunteer? Well, that's what I was going to say is why, why is that? Are, do you think a lot of them do have that just kind of, um, want to get ahead, you know, put it on my resume and there's definitely be- some of that. 
without a doubt there's there's some of that and you know here in in our honors program I try to convince them to go elsewhere mm-hmm. from my president probably shouldn't hear that but <laughs> I because those are the, the remember really smart people did the 2008 economic crisis they didn't care about anybody else mm. right and so you can have really smart people who, who have no compassion no care mm-hmm. those are dangerous people to me and I I don't want to be associated or linked in any way, shape, or form, or have you know any organization that I'm a part of that, to be a part of that. So trying to figure out where they go. I, I think overall that people want to do well, mm-hmm. right? And there are, you can create an environment, and it sounds like World Vision is, is one, that creates an environment that helps those people who want to do well succeed even more, right? And what's even cooler about World Vision and, and learning about them is that it's not just happening within the organization. Its main drive is to help people, you know, outside of it. Right. Right? Exactly. But that's that's the trick, right? And businesses like Patagonia do it, right? Mm-hmm. And they've been around for a real long time. I use them all the time because I, I'm I'm a fan. I love what they do, and they make great products at the same time that last a long time and they guarantee them for life, right? So you have these companies and you have these you know uh, organizations that are out to help other people. How do you populate them? You populate them. People have to see, have to know about World Vision. I'm so glad we're doing this show because you're right. A lot of people don't know about World Vision. Mm-hmm. I want them until, <laughs> right? Until I, we can, I was there. the same way. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't really know about them until, you know, this child sponsorship thing came up, which I definitely want to get to that. Sure. But, um, but the good news is I think that even though there are people that just want to put it on their resume or want to put mm-hmm. it on their college application or whatever reason they're doing it, there must be something in our society that's saying that's a good thing but or this, they wouldn't want to be putting see, it on. The reason there. I'm bringing that up, it's a model, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You can point to, you can actually show it's concrete because when you talk about compassion, what do people tend to do? At least when I was in boot camp, right? If you brought up compassion, oh, you little fluff and nutter, right? <laughs> right? It's kind of soft they think mm-hmm. it's a soft skill. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen through research and science, compassion is actually a hard skill. Right? And we talked about this before, right? Yeah, hard elements. Worth bringing up again. Right? Hard elements like rock. But what cuts through rock? A soft element called water. Mm-hmm. Right? And we have to see these paradoxes. We have to understand how they actually work in the real world. Darwin talks about it, right? Other people talk about it all the time. But we bypass it because our culture says, you know, you have to be tough, whatever tough means, right? We have this misconception of the alpha male, for example, right? I consider World Vision an alpha, you know, organization out helping the world, world, but alpha male in wolves, and that's where it comes from, the alpha male eats last, and it comes up last. It makes sure everyone else is taken care of. It doesn't fight. It only fights to protect everyone else in the pack. And, and that comes out in the Compassion Achiever. It's one of the things about wolf packs and the alpha male that I was taught wrong, hmm. right? And then biologists have said, well, this is the real alpha male. Well, that's what we need to get out, right? We got to get out the idea of what world vision is, right? And then at the same time, show kids that are coming up, these are the real models. If you want real strength, if you want real sustainability, real endurance, real success, this is, these are examples of how it uh, it occurs and it works in the real world, right? Ask uh, Scaramucci how uh, being a jerk mm. panned out for. How's that working right? out? Mm-hmm. Exactly, right? He didn't mm-hmm. even last two weeks. Right? Mm-hmm. This is the idea, right? People think they have to be totally focused on their own self-interest. If you are, you will go down, mm-hmm. right? And I think if, when you're looking out for the network around you, 
it succeeds and world vision is making the world its network right well and also um David, if you could reflect more on this about how World Vision really focuses on the children. It's really about the children. And I and Chris and I have talked about this several times on this podcast. Of Children are born being compassionate. We unlearn it. Hmm. But so I love how World Vision focuses on the children and helping them to learn how to... Um, you know, make these changes that will be sustainable. They also work with the adults too, but their focus is on the kids. And I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Because we, I mean, we find, well, there's lots of different motivations on why the focus is, the emphasis is on children. I mean, we have a faith component that we want to care for the, the least of these, the most vulnerable of these. And then in our societies, in every society, that's children, that's small children. Uh, that don't have the ability to have the voice or the the necessarily the power to make the change that they necessarily need to to wield in order to uh, to make the the life the way they want to make it. So we we focus on the the most vulnerable, and that's children. The other thing that, and from the perspective of it, is the children. And this this sounds like a crude analogy, but hear me out. The children are often the canary in the coal mine in a community. If you have a child that is sick, if you have children that are sick in a community, well, truly you can point to a root cause of uh, where there's brokenness, whether it's brokenness in the healthcare system, brokenness in the access to water or, or sanitation or hygiene. The, the, the children can reflect the health of a community. In the similar note, if you see children playing and thriving, as you know, as we have when we've gone to different communities, we mm-hmm. see we see you know children that are clean. They've got a they've got a bright smile on their face. They're holding you know textbooks. They're running along. They're playing. There's there's security amongst the the community. Well, that's those are indicators that that community is has a health level to it. That this what we are striving for, and so we always ask ourselves whatever it is that World Vision is trying to do. How is it going to benefit the well-being of children? Um, and this isn't something that we've created on our own. The, the, you know, the UNICEF, the United Nations, have identified the well-being of children and what are those measurable goals that we want to attain to. So World Vision comes alongside many other non-governmental organizations to try to ask ourselves, everything that we do needs to directly impact children. And that can even mean micro-enterprise and development. So we're, we're helping farmers um, increase their yield and create co-ops so that they can get more income for their families. And what's that going to do? That's going to benefit the children as long as it's in the right hands. And this is why we often focus on women as well as children, because if you can uh, empower a woman and a mother, um, the children are going to be taken care of. Now, we don't want to say that that we don't help fathers because we do. They're, they're part of that family unit. Um, but that also helps us envision that in the next 20, 30 to 50 years, the people that we are helping today, those are going to be the leaders of the communities uh, that can truly start to take that mindset, that idea of life in all in its fullness and a community as healthy as it can. Um, we help to invest in the future by caring for children. And I just want to say, when it comes to looking out for uh, women and, and mothers specifically, especially in the developing world, where you know the poverty mm-hmm. is is high, it's it's a practical, and I want to make sure our listeners know this. There's a practical, many practical reasons. One, just as you know, my doctoral dissertation is on the international politics of water. That women, overwhelmingly, the majority of people who manage water or get water, 
in those places in the developing world are women, yes. right? They're the ones that are managing. And girls. And girls, mm-hmm. yes. And so, it, you know, when you're looking at the key jobs in terms of sustainability, you know, women are the key uh, for it. And even when you look at political economic and uh, economic development in general, educating a woman creates a power source for a, a country because uh, they tend to to give back and also stay in those communities and build those communities a little bit more so you know for our listeners out there yes i'm a dad i did not take any offense <laughs> so what he said no, he was david what... david was worried right he's like well and i just wanted to say there's practical reasons when you look at the numbers when you look at the studies you know if you want to make a difference right away right and fast especially when it comes to water and know. and just not just water but economics mm-hmm. too they have i mean I, I can't quote any of the studies, but I've read a lot about this, that if it really can change the economics of a country if mm-hmm. you focus on the women. Well, and, I mean, not, and not just the economics, it can change the education level. So let's, mm-hmm. l- let's take the water concept. If you can bring clean water and access to water to a community in a community where typically the mothers and the girls are spending most of their day, not, especially the girls, not going to school, but going to a, a dirty pool of water five miles away to scoop up and bring back to that twice a day, um, you have lost education when you're doing that. So you bring water, clean access to water in that community, and you have blown the lid off uh, the opportunity for girls to now be in the seat next to mm-hmm. the boys and give them a chance to have education. It's a justice issue. And in most countries, women outnumber the men. So if you don't have women in or girls in those uh, school seats, you're basically tying half your body behind your back and trying to p- compete in political economic world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, n- taking half your population off the education uh, line. Right. Right. Automatically handicaps you. And it's not just the water and the economics that do this, but it just opens up this. And I don't want to keep dwelling on the, the female part of this, but the it opens up so many other problems. Trafficking becomes such mm-hmm. an issue when yep. these women and girls are going to get this water and usually traveling long distances by themselves because the boys are either farming or maybe hopefully they're in school. But it just, it, it amazes me. It's such a trickle down effect. Water in particular mm-hmm. is just the turning point of so many success stories in, in a country when they can get clean water and then the health and just, it, like you said, it just balloons after that. And, and it's amazing. And kudos to World Vision for for doing this. And, and I want you to, um, can you uh, talk about a little bit more World Vision doesn't want to just go in and give handouts. They're trying to give hand up, or there's some phrase like that, right? That yeah. trying to make it sustainable and then get out of there. That that's not their goal, right? Uh, to stay in forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can tell you over 70 years we've learned how not to do things. <laughs> okay. um, we've we are a learning organization. We continue to uh, to, to be proud about the fact that there. Are, there are methodologies that um, 30, 20 years ago we thought was the right thing to do. And it kind of came from probably a colonialist standpoint where 
Um, we're the educated, we're the privileged, therefore we know how to transform a community in the developing world. And so the old school method was, let's take all of our know-how, let's take all of our resources, and let's go to Africa and let's fix Africa. Well, we found that that was not successful. Um, and the primary reason is because the Africans weren't a part of it. That's an important piece that you have to, <laughs> we have to learn that mm -hmm. in any community that you want to impact for the positive, that community needs to own that change. Um, the, the key methodology for World Vision, no matter what we're doing, whether it's water, education, uh, economic development, healthcare, uh, child protection, whatever it is, we have to have programs that are community-led, they have to be community-owned, and there has to be sustainability. Because if World Vision is on the ground in a community, and we're providing clean water, and we're providing education and healthcare, and when World Vision leaves, if that community falls apart, we have failed in every aspect of what we're trying to achieve. When you go and see World Vision's work, whether it's in Ethiopia or in Honduras or in Cambodia, you will find the first thing that World Vision is doing is bringing the community leaders together and asking the community leaders, what are your root causes of poverty? What do you see as the key important factors that your community needs and who in your community is going to take and step up and be that leader in order mm -hmm. to do that? So if we're going to, if we're going to, um, you know, in, in Africa, if, if there's a community that needs a well, being dug. The actual drilling of the well is one of the last things that World Vision does. We spend months and months in advance establishing water committees, identifying who in the community is going to be training the, the women and the children and the educators about the importance of water. How do you use the water once it comes to your community? If you have water, but you don't know how to deal with sanitation or hygiene, you're not going to fix anything. So we do a lot of community uh, capacity building. We do a lot of knowledge transfer. And in the end, ideally, it's the community itself that is helping to drill that well or helping mm -hmm. to build that school or helping to create that solution so that when World Vision lightly steps away, that solution is being owned by the community itself. It takes a little bit longer to do. It'd be easy to go in six months and, and, and drill the wells and leave. But the community needs to own it. So it can take up to 10 to 15 years because there's lots of different other external factors that come into um, a solution in a community like that. So it's a long, patient process. But because of that, you have incredible, um, your your outcomes are amazing. What are, what are the numbers that well, these wells work? Yeah, well, the University of North Carolina uh, did a study last year. Um, they wanted, they asked the question, um, what is the sustainability level of some of the wells that are being dug in West Africa? So University of North Carolina looked at um, multiple, multiple water points, and particularly in the West Africa, Ghana region, and they found that on average, half of the wells that are being dug for, from any organization have about a three to five year lifespan. And then the wells break, or they get poisoned, or they're not cared for properly they found that World Vision, over 85% of World Vision's wells, over 10 years were still operating. Mm -hmm. And the re we asked, well, that's wonderful. What's the reason why? And they said, because the community owns those wells. Mm -hmm. They have taken it on their own. They learned how to manage them. They learned how to build the community value around the wells. Many of the water points in Africa that World Vision uh, helps to create, there's an actual cost mechanism to them. So it may cost a few cents uh, every time someone wants to have water. Well, 
there is a higher value when there's an actual cost for it. And, you know, they make it a price point where the average villager can afford it, but that money goes into helping to repair and reestablish and, and keep the well and the water points running the way they need to. So it just is, that's sort of the example of uh, why some of the work that we're doing, even though it takes longer, um, has some evidence through independent study, through you know, North Carolina and Texas A&M is doing another a, a kind of longevity study for our wells in Africa as well. Uh, so that, that helps us validate what we're doing and still have things to learn, lots of things we need to be doing better, but we at least feel confident in that methodology. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. That. So what do you, do you find, I, I love that World Vision um, works it, across the board, and, and it is a faith-based organization, but they also work with Muslims as well. And they're not trying to just go in and just say, this is the way to do it. Like you said, you work with the communities and there's buy-in from the communities. Do you find, Chris, that when people are really kind of encouraged to come along and to change their way of thinking, that it works better than you know, just somebody going in there and saying, okay, this is the one way to do it. Without a doubt. I mean, because it sticks. It acts like a glue, mm-hmm. right, to that change. And whenever you want to have a change in an organization or a change in a community, if it doesn't have, or if it doesn't have the support of the grassroots, if there's no root structure there, the people aren't buying into it, it may look green. But it's not going to look green for very long. Right? Mm-hmm. It's going to die. That, that you know how on some lawns there's these patches of <laughs> uh, of like dead grass. Well, that tends to spread as well, right? So if you don't you know set it, you don't set that soil up. You don't set the community ready for you know what they need to know. Uh, how they about hydrology? They're going to need to have some hydrological experts there and indigenous people that they don't have to rely on somebody else when you give them the tools or you know david said the capacity you know i was thinking back at a a very famous book about international environmental politics back in the 90s and they had this thing called the three c's and in order for any international organization to work they said you had to create these three c's and basically it was you know getting a consensus that there was a problem and that's that and that's going and doing your research right? right then setting up the capacity, so the knowledge that people would need, but not just knowledge, I think we're gonna get into that too, and then create a contractual environment where then all the parties come together to make it actually happen. Mm-hmm. So when if you, basically, you know, it's a, it was an edited volume put out by MIT Press um, that you know I think should still be taught today, but you know, I'm probably one of the few that still teaches it. Um, and. I think it, it goes to the heart of a lot of matters, not just on international organizations, but basic community level building here, mm-hmm. right? People want to do it from the top down. And actually, the way we became the second university of compassion in the world is from the grassroots up. It was two students and me. And then moving it on up, where the first Bringing in more people and staff, one at secretaries. A time, right? I'm going to tell you, the staff here, they, they were the key. If I was to point, so the students and the staff... You know, the secretaries here were the keys to get the University of Compassion off the ground. Where the first University of Compassion came from the president on down, right? And I didn't see that as working here uh, as sustainable. We had to have buy-in from everyone. And if you didn't want it, then, you know, you have the say that you don't want it. 
Um, but I was always interested in hearing those conversations of why you don't want compassion. But we we'll save that for another time, <laughs> uh, right? But yeah, it's those. And, and I think from different levels, from different, you know, I'm talking from different disciplines, but also from international politics level, right? What World Vision is doing, what we're hearing from David, has been shown to work uh, in the past on many different levels. And you know, it's not reinventing the wheel; it's actually making the wheel run a little bit better and more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, and I mentioned this, that um, got me involved with World Vision was the child sponsorship program, which I just think should be a model for so many different organizations. But can you explain what that is for us? Yeah, well, child sponsorship kind of takes the, the philosophy that we have that the children are sort of the indicators of success in the community. And we, we sort of put that into a model where the everyday um, person in America or Canada or Australia that wants to be connected to that community can do so through a child. And so um, the, the whole child sponsorship concept is that you are supporting a child that represents what's happening in that community. Now, people always ask, well, okay, if I, if I donate $35 a month, does the $35 go to the child? And the answer is, of course not, because that would be poor development, and that wouldn't be the, the best use of, of the donor dollars or even for the child. But the funds help to create the base of the programmatic work that we're doing in that child's community. And so the child really represents what's happening. And so um, the, the way the the model works is when you choose a, a child to sponsor, you have an opportunity to actually build a, a relationship with them through correspondence. And it means the world to the children that are there for them to know that there is someone in the developing world that is interested in who they are as a person, is interested that they're learning certain things and they have different hobbies and there's certain uh, uh, career aspirations that they may have. They want, may want to be a doctor or a teacher. There is wonderful intrinsic value in knowing that there is someone on the other side of the planet that's caring for you. And that's not, that's not a monetary exchange that's happening. That's the, that's the love that the child is feeling through someone that is saying, we believe in your community and we believe in you and we are supporting the work that's being done. So there's two different things that's happening. Number one, there's key funding, really important resources that allow World Vision to have staff on the ground so that we can help to provide water solutions or education solutions. But there's a wonderful human exchange that's happening. And I have to tell you, Tracy, um, I think that child sponsorship not only is wonderful for the child, but it can be transforming for the donor on the other oh. side that that has I'm a, a window. Yeah, Absolutely. That has a window. And it's genuine. I, I would be the first to say when I learned about World Vision and I understood the product of child sponsorship, I was skeptical. I thought, okay, I've seen enough late night commercials to see that this this can't <laughs> right, quite this be thing. what you know what it is. Um, but I had a chance to actually look at the, the funding model of sponsorship and then actually to go to the field to meet children that were being sponsored. I, I sponsored my own child as a consultant. Then I went to visit the child. And my number one complaint was, says, you're not telling me all the really cool stuff that's happening in this community. You're sort of underreporting what's happening with this mm-hmm. child. Um, but, and, you know, again, the child sponsorship is a representation. That child probably has a younger brother and a younger sister that may or may not be sponsored because, you know, we simply don't have enough donors on our side to support it. But, but what's the, the wonderful piece is that every child in that community is benefiting from sponsorship. Mm-hmm. They're all, ben- if, every, if that whole community gets clean water, if the whole community gets access to health care, 
everyone benefits. The child is the spokesperson for that community. Mm -hmm. So it's a great model. It's, you know, it's, it's helped us um, invite more and more people into our organization over the last 50 years. And, uh, and we continue to make it stronger. And technology is making it even easier for you to connect with your child because now you can email your child. You That's can actually, what I do. Right. right. And you, there's a, you have your own customized uh, website where you can actually see the map where your child is. There's even videos of the mm -hmm. child's community. So we are trying to shorten that bridge between the supporter and the community that they're in. And that's, again, the, all coming back to technology. The, the one positive about the world being flatter and technology allowing us to get more information is that we can get closer to those people on the other side of the planet and not feel like, oh, they're so far away, they're not really my problem. Mm -hmm. Well, we now can get intimately close with who they are and what their values are, and we can reach out and care for them. And I just find it so rewarding. You know, we've all written a check to different things, which, as you say, is so, I mean, you have to have it. Money talks, obviously. But um, the relationship that you can have with your sponsored child, when they write back these letters to you and, you know, tell us about what they're doing and what's happening in their community and how, you know, they're doing so much better in their schoolwork. And I mean, this is written by them or I, we sponsor an, another younger girl who um, it's written from the parents. And so coming from the parents to see how it's impacting their whole family, as you said, not just the one child that's sponsored is just so rewarding and so fulfilling to me because you sometimes do wonder, you know, where, where does this money go? <laughs> Where's it going? Where right. does it go? You know? Right. Um, and it's a fair question. And when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, all right, how do you choose? Oh, I know. know. Right. Yes. How do you, how do so you? true. I mean, and sometimes, you know, knowledge is power and I truly believe that. But sometimes when people learn about, compassion and that kind of a thing is does that make it harder just as you're saying Chris you know to say I'm going to choose one child or 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 which child or it's hard you want to help everybody but we can we can start with one and then and let that grow I mean do you find that that the more people learn about compassion does it make them more compassionate or does it make them just kind of say, you know, it is what it is. Well, I think that the more they learn about compassion, the more they want to do it. Once they learn that there's benefits, not just for the people that you're helping, but what it does physiologically to you as well, you get a lot of self-benefit. And does it this. feed on itself? It the does. more you do, the it's, more you want yeah. to do? It's, <laughs> and, and as you know, I'm a runner, right? And so, you know, the days I don't run, I'm Crankenstein. <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna right because the running, the running high, right? It feeds on itself, yeah. right? And so you know, on Saturdays, that's when you want to be around me. I you know, I do those long runs. I'm like, yeah, you want to beat me up? Go for it. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I will say this on that note, um, just a little bit about philanthropy. 
I don't know many people who have giver's remorse. I know a lot of people <laughs> mm, who have buyer's remorse. Is, I don't, I, I'd love to meet someone that has made a sacrificial gift, whatever it is, whether mm. it's a world vision or it's an alma mater or it's a museum or whatever, and said, boy, I really regret giving that away. Most people, when they give, they feel good about it. And mm. there's something that's happening, whether it's physiologically mm-hmm. or the chemicals, you feel like you are contributing to a better society. And that's 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 the fun part, at least about my role, is I get to work with people that are are wondering, well, what what is the solution? What's the answer to that? And if the answer is international relief and development, then we've got a great opportunity to do that. And it's exciting. And mm. and the other piece to it is, especially in this day and age, poverty is in retreat. You know, extreme poverty. So 20 years ago, the number of people living in extreme poverty was 31 million people. That's now down to 17 million people. There's lots of different reasons why that's happening. But poverty is truly extreme poverty. People living on $2 a day. That is in decline. We actually have the capability, not just world vision. This is all of the efforts, governmental, non-governmental across the planet. In our lifetime, we could see essentially no one living in extreme poverty. There will always be poverty, but you talk about extreme poverty where people are dying from diseases that there's there's cures for every day. In this day and age, we have the ability to actually, you know- Eradicate it. In most cases, eradicate it. Mm. That's a once in a generation. Our grandparents got to help eradicate polio. This is an opportunity in this generation where you literally could, could see you know, before we pass, that that truly the the definition of extreme poverty on this planet has reduced to a marginal marginal number, and that's because we have the the technology to help people. We've got the information systems where we can reach the most remote communities, and we've got resources that we can arrange together to use in the most productive way to help tackle. Because in every aspect of our planet. Every where every where the humans are living, there is capability for life and flourishing of life to take place. But you've got to have some key ingredients. You've got to have, you've got to have access to water. You have to have access to some sort of livelihoods, to food security. That can be accomplished in our lifetime. So if there's no other reason for people to lean in and engage mm-hmm. to give, not only because it feels good, but you actually could be a part of seeing the end of it take place. Well, and I don't want to make this podcast sound like a commercial right. or, a, or a fundraising activity, but I am going to ask you one more question sure. about the fundraising campaign called Every Last One. It's a call to save every last child where World Vision says, as you talked about, from extreme poverty. Um, what is that? What, what does that mean? Well, it, you know, in, in a lot of nonprofits and even in universities, um, the, the way we raise resources is through campaigns. So mm-hmm. I'm sure uh, WestCon has had one. And <laughs> if, if, if I understand it, uh, once you finish one campaign, you're starting another. Uh, that's just the world that we live in. Um, but we have recognized that if we are able to come together globally as a partnership with World Vision, work with not only corporations, but also work with government agencies to raise a substantial amount of funds for the right types of interventions like water and child protection, um, we can make a massive dent in terms of the number of people living in extreme poverty. So that's what our campaign is for. The, it actually started two years ago, seven year campaign. And we're really 
uh, making a, a real uh, focus into the things that we're really good at. You know, there was that old, there was the book Good to Great, and one of the things that they, uh, they he talked about was the hedgehog concept, and that was identify the one thing that you're really good at, that you really can make inroads in, and focus and be good at that one thing. Well, for World Vision, it's, you know, 10 years ago, we used to do 50 different programmatic <laughs> interventions, and they were all fine, but we found out if we were focused on three or four of them, we could be excellent and we could impact more people. And so that's that's what this campaign is for us. It's really honing in uh, specific areas, um, water sanitation and hygiene, economic development or economic empowerment, mother and child health, child protection, uh, emergency relief. If we can focus on those areas, we can impact more people in the next seven years than we've ever been able to in the past. And so that's that's sort of what this campaign is. It's a journey for us to get more efficient and more focused in what we're doing. And we're in, inviting people to, to help be a part of that. I love it, it's great. So um, do you have, did you have any other questions? Because otherwise I'm gonna throw them the, um, what oh, is compassion? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we ask everybody this. Please, but th- there's, oh. one, there's one thing though for the listeners I wanna kind of boil down to, because I think that, I want them, I want us all kind of figure and listen to David about what he's saying about world poverty. And I'm like, well, what does that have to do with me and my organization or here? And, mm-hmm. and you know, it was getting to what you were saying, Tracy, about compassion, that you can have the technology, you can have the resources, you can even have the knowledge. But if you don't have compassion, we've known that there are entities that have taken the knowledge, the resources, mm. and used it for ways that we're either exclusively self-interested or against others, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, same thing on an organization. When, if compassion could be a, a part of solving world poverty, you know, I, I want people to take a look at, you know, From Great to Good uh, and, and other, other books and Isaiah Berlin's Hedgehog and, and the Fox. Um, compassion fits into all of that the fact that think about a business environment or a work environment of any kind that you've been in that didn't have compassion did you feel productive did you feel energized when you went in there no the answer is no because you were looking out for your back you were you didn't want to get out of bed right and what compassion does it actually and we talked about this before right it it activates that uh, peptide, neuropeptide hormone, oxytocin, mm. which then releases dopamine and serotonin, right? And that, that is contagious throughout any organization. That builds effectiveness, right? Um, I, I know that, you know, one CEO is looking for efficiency, but I, I'm, I'm big about effectiveness, right? I, I, I believe what Abraham Lincoln said, right? You take your time to sharpen that ax before you chop down that tree, right? right? And, and then when you, you just have to do it in one fell swoop. It makes it a lot easier and then instead of having to hit maybe 10 times, you hit once, mm-hmm. right? And, and it goes down. And, and I think that compassion is that sharpened tool for any organization. It could be a team, it could be a business, it could be in a classroom. And, you know, when you're listening to this podcast about, you know, compassion is a part of solving world poverty, you know, look down from there, you know, uh, uh, from this discussion about your organization, about your place in the world. Are you building a place that's compassionate, Hmm. right? Because then you're creating a community that does have the kind of consensus the concern to do things, the capacity to do things. And then you'll set up an environment where they actually get done. And it's, you know, when we talk about these high 
high uh, international level things. I don't want us to get lost about what it means individually for us. Hmm. So and, true. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and a little postscript to that. I, I've always said to folks that have asked me about sort of my career path and, and kind of why I've stuck with World Vision. Um, you know, one of my philosophies is if you can get up in the morning and go to work at a place where you would work for free because you love what they do and you believe in the mission of what they do it, no matter what that is, whether that's a nonprofit or if it's for profit, um, if you're at that space, um, you've probably you're probably in an environment where there's compassion that's alive there because people people are focused towards one thing that's greater than themselves. Mm-hmm. If you can find that, hold on to that because <laughs> that, that that gets you through tough days as well. Um, not every day is going to be rosy. No. Not every day is going to be easy. But if you and no know, matter what company you're working yes. for, I'm sure you have that in World Vision in WestCon. I'm sure it's bliss here. But no. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> our engineers are laughing. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, and I don't mean that. I obviously being facetious. No, but, but. but seriously, for for example, I didn't tell you this, but one of the things that you know got me going today on Saturday we lost. Ellie's uncle. Oh, and I'm sorry. He was rushed to the hospital on, on Thursday and Friday. And, you know, in the podcast, one of the things that get me going, because I'm going to talk to some really cool people who are doing some really cool things around the world for other people, right? And making success. And it gets you up and going. So no matter what you're going through personally, when you're in an environment surrounded by that, it helps motivate you. It helps keep you going uh, in, in the direction that you want to go. And, you know, and it's not just words that we say, you know, and I didn't want so to bring true. it up, but, no, but, that's, so but that's the case. Hear that. and, and yeah, we called him Grunkle Jimmy. Oh. Right? And he was he was awesome. He was one of those guys who just always made you laugh and you know, he, a true gentleman in every sense of the, of the way. Mm-hmm. And born here in Danbury, by the way. Oh. Uh, but he's, he died in Cape Cod. He was in Cape Sorry. Cod. That's where he lives now. But anyways, that's the point, right, that. When you're surrounded by compassion and you're going, you have this intrinsic motivation, you, you want to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to throw out our question that we ask every guest. Sure. Is compassion a value of virtue or a verb? Value, virtue, or verb? And why? Um, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> We're gonna have to have Pete play some music. Yeah, Pete, I'm sure Pete has something. <laughs> yeah, he's always on it. Wow. Well, I mean, I could take the easy way out and say, well, it depends. It could be all three if you needed to. But <laughs> that's okay. That's, that's you know, I think. Um, boy, I have to be careful about how I answer this question. I think that um, compassion is not something that each one of us is necessarily has in the forefront of our minds. Um, it you know, at every given phase of our lives. There's people listening to the podcast that probably haven't thought a lot about it. They're obviously listening to the podcast, so they're considering it. Um, but I think we each um, have a journey that where some things come along in our lives that um, that cause us to respond in ways that we wouldn't naturally think that we would. And I think that's that's the compassion that's inside us. And I think that is an intrinsic value that may be hidden for a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. They may be suppressed, uh, maybe not intentionally, but maybe just because of the environment that you're in. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of people that grow up saying, you know, I just, I just didn't care about this stuff. You know, I had a happy life, happy family, happy friends, busy doing other things. I didn't think about uh, things that tugged at my heart. Mm-hmm. And so um, I love the fact that for a lot of people, 
Uh, compassion isn't something that you can just stand up and say, I'm going to declare I'm going to be compassionate about something. Um, there's often things that come into your life that, that cause that stirring. Mm -hmm. And if you can identify that, and that can sort of awaken inside you, that becomes, it's, that becomes a value that you share. And then you have to, you have to figure out what you're going to do with that, right? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, you realize that you've got this compassion for, you know, for uh, abused animals. And now you're like, well, what do I do with that? But all I know is every time I hear a story about it or I see it, it invokes this emotion in me that I can't quite explain. And what's this water coming out of my eyes? That's frustrating, right? So we, I think each one of us has to go through a process where you're, you're identifying what what the compassion is in you um, and once you have that you have to you're constantly on a journey of how do i take that value and apply it to everything that i'm doing and i guess in in that uh, vantage point it can it can evolve into a virtue because that starts to define how you uh, see things it defines how you uh, you know uh, have a world view and how you relate to people and situations and then if you take it a step further, hopefully it turns into a verb where you say, you know what, I'm going to take what's bothering me in my heart and I'm going to act on it. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I don't know if we have people in all our society that go that far down the road. Mm -hmm. I think people are somewhere between step one and two. You know, they, you know, they know something's bothering them. They don't quite know what to do with it. They're started, they're sort of thinking about it. Maybe they even verbalize it. Hey, you know, animals being abused bothers me, you know, so that, that that's a dinner table conversation. So, but how does it go from being uh, something that you value inside you to becoming a virtue that you stand for to becoming a verb that you're going to act on? So that's, that's my, good that's answer. my attempt. That was a very good one. Well, David Mitchell from World Vision, thank you so much for being with us today. You can uh, check out more worldvision.org. Yes. Right? And, of course, you can find us at WCSU Media. Chris, thank you. Thank you, always. Tracy. Thank you, David. And we hope you, the listener, found ways that you can unleash the compassionate achiever within you so that you can unlock success. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.